Once upon a time in the early part of the 20th century, a detective who had once failed to find Jack the Ripper was investigating a missing person. While searching the home she once lived in, he found something gruesome in the basement. It was a body, but without a head, limbs, or even bones. Was this the body of the missing woman, and was her husband the killer? Find out on the true story of the Dr. Cripper murder case on the 154th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. Thanks for joining me today. Today I have the story of a real murder mystery. And the story is a bit of a long one, so I think I'll keep my intro short. It actually could have been a lot longer, there's a lot to this. I used a book called Dr. Crippen, the infamous London cellar murderer of 1910 by Nicholas Condell for a lot of today's story, as well as two videos on the story, a BBC documentary television series from 1993 called Great Crimes and Trials of the 20th Century, and another YouTube video called Dr. Crippen, Miscarriage of Justice. Those were the main three, but there were others as well, and I'll have links to all of them in today's show notes. So what I'm saying is today I'm going to tell you the basic story, but there's a lot more to it if you feel like looking into it. So, since it's long, let's get to it. The story of Dr. Crippen and his missing wife. This podcast is part of the PsyCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash PsyCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. The Crippen's marriage was not a happy one. I think Dr. Crippen is probably an epitome of a hempacked husband. His wife, Cora, was bigger than he was. And in fact, it's not much doubt she entertained lovers in the house when he was there, and he had to take them tea and biscuits afterwards. In July of 1910... A man identifying himself as John Philo Robinson was traveling with his teenage son aboard the ocean liner SSS Montrose from England to Canada. To the captain of the Montrose, there was something peculiar about the two. They seemed to be acting a bit too lovingly to be a father and son. The way they walked around holding hands just didn't seem right. Back in England, a police hunt for a suspected murderer made headlines all over the world. The captain of the Montrose believed that Mr. Robinson was actually the man the police were looking for. He used his new Marconi telegraph, reporting the two to authorities. The English police boarded a faster ocean liner, the SS Lornetic. An Atlantic Ocean chase began to catch the man. He called himself John Robinson, but he was actually Dr. Holly Crippen, a man wanted for the murder of his wife. Holly Harvey Crippen was an American who made his fortune as a doctor of homeopathy. Homeopathy, if you don't know, is a pseudoscience that claims that a substance that causes the symptoms of a disease in a healthy person would cure similar symptoms in a sick person. In my opinion, it's a scam that hurts a lot of people, but that's a story for another podcast. 
Now, Crippen had been previously married and had a son with a woman named Charlotte. Charlotte died of a stroke in 1892, and his son, Holly Otto, was left to be raised by Crippen's parents in California. Dr. Crippen was doing pretty well working in New York as a homeopathic doctor when he married a would-be music hall singer, Kunigata Makamotsi, who went by the name of Corrine Turner, Cora to her friends. Cora was 19 years old at the time of the marriage, and Crippen was 31. It was an odd marriage, since the two had nothing in common. Crippen was a small, quite respectable professional man, while Cora was a large, outgoing woman who aspired to be a singer and actress. She was showy and flirtatious, while Crippen was quiet and non-confrontational. In 1897, the two moved to England, even though Crippen's U.S. medical qualifications were not sufficient to allow him to practice as a doctor in the U.K. He had been hired in 1894 by Dr. Munyon, a homeopathic pharmaceutical company, and was selling homeopathic medicine. Cora was still trying to get her singing career off the ground, going under the stage name Belle Elmore. She never had much success, but she did spend a lot of time with other successful entertainers, including Lil Hawthorne of the Hawthorne Sisters and Lil's husband and manager John Nash. Although her singing career was a failure, she still wanted to be around the action. She was very popular with those in the theater, and she made friends very easily. Wanting to still be involved, she took the job as treasurer of the Music Hall Ladies Guild, a charitable organization to support women and children of their profession who had fallen on hard times. Apparently, Crippen, who was known strangely as Peter to his friends, had been spending a lot of time managing her career, too much time for the Munion Company, who decided to fire him in 1899. He took the job as a manager of Drought's Institution for the Deaf. It was there he hired a young typist named Ethel Lenev. As time went on, the relationship between Crippen and Cora slowly deteriorated. Many reports say that Cora was having affairs and didn't keep it a secret. She also began to drink heavy. By 1905, the couple found themselves in financial trouble, so they moved into a rundown area of London to 39 Hilldrop Crescent. They began to take in lodgers to help with money, and it is thought that Cora began having an affair with at least one of the lodgers. By 1908, the 47-year-old Crippen was having an affair of his own with the 26-year-old typist Ethel Lenev. Must have been awkward around the breakfast table, don't you think? Anyway, our mystery begins on the 30th of June, 1910. That was the date that two friends of Cora's, John Nash and Little Hawthorne, went to Scotland Yard to report something they thought strange. Not only had they not seen Cora since a party at the Crippen House on January 31st, but now they heard that she was dead. They contacted Superintendent Frank Castle Frost, Roast brought in Detective Chief Inspector Walter Dew. These men had recently been dealing with, unsuccessfully, the Jack the Ripper case. Detective Drew would later say that the Crippen case was the most intriguing murder mystery of the century. Besides John Nash and his wife, the police also heard from a strong woman, Kate Williams, who went by the name of Volcana. She was a friend of Cora's, and she thought something wasn't right as well. 
Like I said, there had been a party at the Krypton house on January 31st, and according to friends, Cora had been very jolly and had been the happiest party imaginable. After that party, nobody but Dr. Crippen would ever see Cora again. Just days after the party, Dr. Crippen began telling people that Cora had suddenly gone to America, to California. A letter was sent to Guild Secretary Melinda May that said, Illness of a near relative has called me back to America on only a few hours' notice, so I must ask you to bring my resignation as treasurer before the meeting today, so that a new treasurer can be elected at once. You will appreciate my haste when I tell you that I have not been to bed all night packing and getting ready to go. I hope to see you again a few months later, but I cannot spare a moment to call on you before I go. I wish you everything nice till I return to London again. Now goodbye with love hastily. And it was signed Bell Elmore. The problem was the note wasn't in Cora's handwriting. As time went on, Dr. Crippen began telling all those who knew Cora that she had suddenly been taken ill with influenza. Clara Martinelli, the wife of a retired musical artist who had been friends with Cora for the last year and a half, received a note from Crippen on the 24th of March that read, Bell died yesterday at 6 o'clock. Please phone Annie, referring to another Guild member, Annie Stratton. She'll be away for a week, signed Peter. An obituary appeared in the Music Hall and Theater Review that read, With deep regret, I record the death of Miss Bell Elmore, wife of Dr. Crippen, the late honorary treasurer of the Music Hall Ladies Guild. She passed away in California, USA, March 23rd. She was an old and valued friend of mine for many years, and the good work she did for the Guild and her kindness to all will leave a tender remembrance in the hearts of those who knew her. Peter, a.k.a. Dr. Crippen, began to tell everyone that knew Cora that she had died in America. And at the same time, his lover, Ethel Lenev, moved into the Crippen house and had started wearing Cora's jewelry and her fur coats. They began acting as man and wife. Some say Dr. Crippen never looked happier. On the 8th day of July, at around 10 o'clock, Detective Dew, along with Sergeant Arthur Mitchell, arrived at Crippen's house. The doctor wasn't in. They talked to Lenerve, who, as Dew later said, became a little agitated. Eventually, they met with Crippen at his office. It was there he made a confession. He had lied about Cora. The story of her dying in America was just fabricated to avoid embarrassment. According to Crippen, Cora had always threatened to leave him, and after the party on January 31st, they had an argument. He said it was because during the party, Mr. Martinelli needed to use the bathroom, and since he had been in the home many times before, Dr. Crimpin didn't bother to show him the way. For some reason, Cora thought that was wrong, that he should have escorted Mr. Martinelli. She told her husband that this was the last straw. She was leaving, and he would never see or hear from her again. She went on to say that he should come up with a story to cover up any scandal this might bring the best way he could. Now, she had threatened to leave many times, so he didn't take her seriously. But the next day, when he returned home, she was gone. He came up with the going to America and dying story to satisfy friends and colleagues. Dr. Crippen gave a complete statement that took six hours to complete, and he signed each page of it. Most people believe that Dr. Crippen's statement is not exactly true, that it's a mixture of fact and fiction. 
Detective Dew said he considered the statement a ingenious story. Half of it was true and half of it was false. And he said that he believed that Crippen was an accomplished liar. They also took a statement from Miss Lenev and were allowed to search the house. The search revealed nothing except the fact that Cora seemed to have left behind a lot, including her jewelry. Detective Bruce said, I was trying to get the hang of the case, which had become more difficult at every turn. I certainly had no suspicion of murder. You don't jump to the conclusion that murder had been committed merely because a wife disappeared and a husband told lies about it. But he had lied. I couldn't get this fact out of my mind, and I was determined, if humanly possible, to find out why he had gone to such great lengths to throw dust in the eyes of Belle Elmore's friends. On July 11th, the detectives returned to the Crippen house but found something strange. The house was vacant. Both Dr. Crippen and his lover had fled. This gave them even more time to search the house, and it was in the basement that they made a horrible discovery. Underneath the stones of the floor, they unearthed several items, including a hair curling pin with light and dark hairs attached, parts of a lady's undergarment, portions of a man's pajama shirt, and a rotted man-sized handkerchief knotted at two ends with a piece of coarse string but the shocking part was the discovery of human remains. Not the whole body, but just the torso without the bones, as if the flesh had been filleted. The head, limbs, and skeleton, and anything else that could give a positive identification was not there. But whoever buried this made a huge mistake. They used ordinary lime, which, when mixed with water, actually preserved the remains, rather than quick lime, which would have hurried the decomposition. And it was also determined that there were traces of a drug called hyoscine in the torso, and it is thought that this was the poison that killed Cora. For Drew, this was it. Dr. Crippen was a murderer, and he was on the run. He was determined to catch the killer. This may be because he never got over the Jack the Ripper thing, so this time he was determined not to let the murderer get away. What had happened to Dr. Crippen and his lover was that, apparently, after the police's first visit, Dr. Crippen panicked. He had Lenev cut her hair short and bought a man's suit, tie, and hat to pass her off as a young boy. He shaved off his own mustache and stopped wearing his glasses. The plan was to travel to the USA to begin a new life, but then, once they heard about the discovery of the body... They changed their plans and headed to Canada. Soon the story of murder was a news sensation. The Dr. Crippen murder was on the front page of papers all over the world. The public waited anxiously to hear news of the killer's capture. Friends and neighbors were in shock as many believed that the two were a devoted couple and they found it hard to believe that Dr. Crippen could have done such an awful thing. Interestingly, Crippen's son Otto in America was quoted in an American paper saying that his father no doubt committed the crime because of his infatuation for other women. He said, I am not a bit surprised because I understand he passed most of his time in the company of various women who accepted his advances. Scotland Yard sent a description of the pair to various countries they thought he might flee to and offered a 250-pound reward for information leading to their arrest. 
Meanwhile, Detective Dew began to gather all the evidence he could that would satisfy a grand jury. At the same time, the press began to criticize Detective Dew for not arresting the doctor in the first place. Perhaps the only two who were unaware that this story was front-page news all over the world was Dr. Crippen and Ethel Lenev. They were too busy trying to convince a ship full of people that they were a father and son as they made their way to Canada. Scotland Yard got many false leads, and Detective Dew began feeling the stress. It was then that the captain of the Montrose, Henry Kendall, figured out that the suspects were two of his passengers. It only took him about three hours after the ship sailed to realize something was wrong. It was the way they squeezed each other's hands while walking together that made him think that this was either a very strange father and son relationship or that perhaps there was something else going on. It was things like the clothes not fitting right on the boy, his hips being a little wide for the pants he was wearing. Now, to be sure, Kendall collected English newspapers, went into his cabin and put them on the wall. He chalked out Crippen's mustache and glasses, and with the photograph of Lenev, he tried to imagine her without the hair and wearing a hat. When he came across the Robinsons on deck, he noticed that even though Robinson wasn't wearing glasses, like in the newspaper photo, he could see the marks on the nose where the glasses used to rest. Engaging the man in conversation, he asked about seasickness. Robinson answered with some medical terms for certain remedies that convinced Kendall that Robinson and Crippen were one and the same. At one point they had dinner together and he could see that the boy's mannerisms seemed more like that of a woman rather than a man. Eventually Kendall made the decision to use the Marconi wireless to send a message. Montrose, 130 miles west of Lizard, have strong suspicion that Crippen, London cellar murderer and accomplice are among saloon passengers. Mustache shaved off, growing beard. Accomplice dressed as boy. Voice, manner, and build undoubtedly a girl. Detective Dew by this time was exhausted by looking for the murderer and receiving many false leads, but when he received the wireless message, he was reinvigorated and received permission to board a faster ship, the SS Laurentic, and attempted to beat the Montrose to Canada. With Kendall sending daily reports about the couple, the race to arrest the two was in all the papers. One headline read, On the track of Krypton, an ocean race. On the 27th of July, 1910, the SS Laurentic passed the SS Montrose. Detective Dew made it to Canada a day before the Montrose was due to arrive and worked with Canadian authorities to organize the arrest, dressing himself as a ship pilot. On the 31st of July, the pilot ship carrying Dew and Canadian authorities pulled up to the Montrose. Once on the steamer, Dew walked up to Crippen and said, Good morning, Dr. Crippen. It only took a few moments before Crippen realized who Dew was. Looking at the arrest warrant, he mumbled, Murder and mutilation. Oh, God. Reporters had followed Dew onto the ship, and many reported that Crippen seemed to be relieved that the whole ordeal was over. He quickly confessed at being the doctor and agreed to go back to England without a fuss. According to one newspaper, Detective Dew and Dr. Crippen entered the cabinet in which Lenerve was in. The young lady yelled, That's Inspector Dew! What does he want? 
Then she broke down and sobbed for some minutes, declaring her innocence, and then went off and fainted. At one point, Dr. Crippen said, I feel relieved. The strain of the past fortnight weighed heavily on me. The couple spent 19 days in a Canadian jail before being put on a ship to head back to England. From the day of his arrest and throughout his trial, Dr. Crippen insisted that he didn't know where the remains in the basement came from and he didn't kill his wife, that she was most likely alive somewhere. It is thought that he could have probably made a deal by admitting an accidental killing or, or one of jealous rage and got off with manslaughter. But he never changed his story. And there were a few pieces of evidence that sealed his fate. A pathologist identified a scar on some of the flesh found as identical to one that Cora had after an operation. The pajamas that were found had a label that were only printed after the date the Crippens moved into the house. That seemed to disprove his claim that the body must have been buried there before they moved in. Traces of the drug hydroxine were found in the flesh, a drug that Crippen had purchased only a few days before Cora's disappearance, and the hair that was contained in the hair clip was identified as Cora's. It took the jury only 27 minutes to find Holly Harvey Crippen guilty of murder. He was sentenced to death by hanging. Lenerve was charged with only being an accessory after the fact and was acquitted. Dr. Crimpin was hung at 9 a.m. on the 23rd of November, 2010, at Pentonville Prison in London. Ethel Lenerve emigrated to the United States on the morning of her lover's execution. At his request, her photograph was placed in the coffin to be buried with him. She changed her name and was married in 1915. She had two children, but never told her husband, son, or daughter that she had once been the notorious mistress of a murderer and had herself stood trial. And she died in Los Angeles, is that correct? Must be three months back now. Gosh, yeah, March 23rd. And you're certain of that, Dr. Crippen? I think I would remember a thing like that, don't you? It's just the authorities there have no record of your wife's death. Well, that is strange. I can't... Suppose I had better tell the truth. My wife... I... My wife isn't dead. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to The Sad Sack. A few things before I go. First, it's Detective Dew, D-E-W. I found myself saying Drew a lot, Detective Drew. And I went back and I fixed, I think, all of them. But if you hear me say Drew, I apologize. It's Dew. Anyway, in 2010, DNA tests were done on the flesh found in Dr. Crippen's basement. According to these tests, it not only didn't match the DNA of Cora's descendants, but it's also the DNA of a male. It is also thought that the scar found on the torso was incorrectly identified. Some wonder if some of the other evidence wasn't planted by the police detectives who needed a win after the Ripper case. 
If you search Crippen on the Internet, you'll find story after story about how this was a miscarriage of justice and that an innocent man was executed. Others argue back, of course. They say that the DNA could have been tainted or mislabeled, or that the relatives who provided the DNA were not actually blood relatives of Mrs. Crippen. But beyond that, questions go through my mind. Like, would a police detective really plant evidence with the danger that Cora was not dead, that she might walk into the police station at any time? On the other side, why did Crippen take the time to get rid of a huge portion of the body and leave a chunk in the basement? just doesn't seem to make any sense. And the story of how Cora said he would never see or hear from her again sounds pretty convenient. Would Cora really just take off and not at least say goodbye to one of her friends? And if she wasn't killed and still alive somewhere, surely she would have heard of the trial. After all, it was worldwide news. She would have to be a pretty terrible person not to at least write a letter or something to let the world know she wasn't dead. Could she have really been that cold to let her ex-husband face execution? In 1981, newspapers reported that Sir Hugh Rise Rankin claimed to have met Ethel Lenerve in 1930 in Australia, and on that occasion, she told him that Crippen murdered his wife because she had syphilis. Well, how about the ending credits? This podcast, like all those on the Psycon Network, are free to listen to, but they are not free to publish. Remember, a dollar or two to you might not seem like a lot of money, but it's huge to us. If you want to help out, go over to Psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. We could use your help, and a sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? Have you been listening to the new Weekly Geek Days? You know, I'm on it, and I do something others have called Mini Coffee with Jeff episodes. Have a listen. You can find it and other shows at the Psycon website. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Your story ideas are always welcome. Believe me, always. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin to help financially, just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars. Those really help. And remember, links to all the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks. Bye. Coffee, 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 coffee
Thank you. 